It is a busy month of February for us here on the show, and we've got quite a cerebral discussion today, if I do say so myself. We're talking about status, which writer Chuck Thompson says is undergoing a revolution. Status was once easy to identify, but now, as it has become so accessible to so many, has it lost its power and its luster? What does status even mean in 2023? We dig into that and more in this chat. The book we're talking about today is out now, and it's called The Status Revolution, The Improbable Story of How the Lowbrow Became the Highbrow. A little about Chuck, the book's author. This is his fourth book, and his work has also appeared in Politico, Esquire, Men's Journal, The New Republic, and many other places. And this is one that'll definitely get you thinking. Take a listen. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. So I would love to know what compelled you in the first place to write this book. How did the idea originate? It originated actually in my publisher's office at John Carp's office at Simon & Schuster. And we were, uh, we were talking about several book ideas that I had and he had. And we kept kind of circling around to this idea of status. And initially, I got to tell you, I was a little skeptical because status isn't, hasn't been sort of this concept that I've really cared about. I mean, to be honest, you know, bling has always bored me. Um, and, you know, this isn't really a book about famous designer brands or orgies of overindulgence or something <laughs> like that, you know, but um, it's more about kind of how attitudes about status are changing. And, and to get back to your question, I mean, I thought, well, okay, we, we both had this idea and we kind of liked it. And I said, well, let me do a month or two of research and see what I come back with if I really feel like there's a book here. And pretty quickly, I started seeing there are all these concepts that I read about the, in the book are everywhere. And I became initially really fascinated with this massive industry that's churning away behind the luxury and status and prestige machine, as it were. There's a huge academic community, as well as a business community devoted to studying and understanding um, status, luxury, prestige, and what drives people to, to want to acquire that. And um, in the course of that early research, I also realized, talked to a few people, that our collective attitudes about status and prestige are undergoing their biggest convulsion since the Industrial Revolution, really. Mm. And so that's when I thought, okay, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here. And in particular, to finally put a note on it, there was a, a quote of, you know, somebody talked about how there's really two, two things that are defined sort of the, the driving forces, particularly behind Western society, and that's money and status, mm-hmm. currency and prestige. They're really kind of hand in hand. There's, and when you think about it in that way, at any rate, they're really the twin driving forces of, of how our society organizes itself. And so I thought, wow, this is undergoing a big change. I really want to find out more about this and I want to write about it. Well, as you say, the book is about status and you write and you talk about the industrial industrial revolution. That's a perfect segue because I'm including that, that bit from the book. You write, everywhere you look, Americans are signaling status in new ways and that for the first time since the industrial revolution, popular definitions of status, luxury, and notably privilege are changing dramatically. So what are these new ways and these changes and what does status in air quotes, look like today? 
Well, that last one is the, the toughest one, and I'm, I hope I even got to answering it in the 200 plus pages pages of this book. But um, I think that the change is happening on different levels, and one of the most important ones is on the scientific level. Um, right back when when philosophers like uh, Thorstein Veblen and John Kenneth Galbraith and Vance Packard, these are some of the individuals who really framed status in the consumer age as something malign or morally deficient. But to me, the real first takeaway about this status revolution that's occurring is that status seeking is no longer a sin. It's biology, right? With, with, with the types of um, research techniques that are available to scientists now, specifically something like fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, scientists can actually see activity in the brain's pleasure centers heightening at the exact moment that a person consumes, say, a high-priced wine or some other product associated with elitism or prestige. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that pleasure center activity is created by this rush of dopamine, the, bra the brain's right, the primary reward chemical, when the brain believes it is consuming something associated with status. So people that I, I mentioned before, Thorstein Veblen, who coined the term the leisure class, and Vance Packard, who coined the term status seeking, both in a pejorative way, they felt that these were, that status was, you know, this kind of failing that we had, something that the that advertising agencies were manipulating us into, or, or you know, in, in old Christendom that were, were, were sort of among the seven deadly sins. But in fact, we're finding out now that it's really not that. There, there's a biological function. There is a measurable biological function that occurs when we, you know, um, are associating ourselves with status or consumption of status. And so that's one way that we're really starting to rethink about what status is and why people want it so much. And that's also helping, you know, luxury marketers and brands kind of recalculate um, their the messages that they send out when they're trying to sell their products. Mm -hmm. There's something else that's happening as well when you talk about what does status look like today. And, you know, for sure, status is in some ways, not always, but in some ways really shifting away from a definition that's driven almost entirely by money or capitalism, right? Social currency is really gaining ground. And I think we're in the very early stages of this, at right? this global societal awakening around Occupy and Me Too and Black Lives Matter and other social justice movements, they're really turning, you know, ideas, they're challenging ideas about what is status, what is privilege, right, in, in a very real way. Um, and then again, there's the, you know, the social media driven zeitgeist that says exposures and clicks and influence are more important than salary in many ways. So mm -hmm. those are just a couple of the ways I think that um, we're, we're really kind of changing the way that society looks at status and defines privilege and, and who gets it, why they get it, who else is entitled to it. Well, you write that the notion of status now often as not conforms to the famous, I think this is hilarious, to the famous Supreme Court definition of pornography. You know it when you see it and usually have mixed feelings about it when you do, which is hilarious and true. So is status more accessible than ever? And does that depreciate its value? That's a really good question. I, I take that on. I think it's in chapter four or five. But the the people who are marketing luxury products to the world would say, yes, it is more accessible than ever. In fact, they've got this kind of mantra uh, in the in the status marketing world that is status is for everyone, luxury is for everyone. And at first, this sounds like an oxymoron, right? I mean, status is meant to separate 
the prized from the insignificant. How can status be for everyone? That defeats the purpose of having status or privilege, right? But what's driving this is <clears throat> the consolidation of luxury brands over the past 25, 30, 40 years has really changed the prestige industry considerably, right? What were once these small family-run entities are now part of large corporations, right? LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moe, Hennessy, I think. They own like 75 brands, like Bulgari and Tiffany. Mm -hmm. um, Estee Lauder owns 50 plus luxury brands. Richemont owns Cartier and Montblanc and Ralph Lauren and so forth. And so one of the big conundrums facing contemporary status marketers is reconciling the fact that while a product's prestige is often based on scarcity and cost, in order to attain the scale necessary to remain globally competitive, a consolidated brand now has to attract a mass following, right? But the concepts of scarcity and mass production are totally at odds, right? And so the question you're getting to is the way I put it in the book, how is BMW supposed to retain its reputation for elitism when its cars are driven by school teachers and Applebee's managers, right? right. Does BMW ownership elevate the status of the working class or does their allegiance to the product devalue the brand? And what the brand will tell you, and the way that they're addressing this problem, is that they're promoting this idea of status is for everyone, prestige is proletariat. And, and social media um, kind of goes hand in hand with that. That's so interesting, especially from a marketing perspective, because yeah, it's just, it's a conundrum. And, and status used to be something that only the privileged few could attain, but, and this is an interesting problem. You write, one of the big conundrums facing contemporary status makers is reconciling the fact that, as you just were talking about, the while a product's prestige is often based on scarcity and cost, in order to attain the global influence necessary to remain competitive within an increasingly saturated luxury market, a consolidated brand must now attract a mass following. The concepts of scarcity and mass production are at odds. So, you kind of touched on this just a minute ago, but how do status makers reconcile this or can they? Well, I think that's an arguable point. A lot of people will say they can't. And at first, to be honest with you, the idea that status is for everyone really made no sense to me either. <laughs> but it's the line they're pushing. And they're doing it successfully because the luxury brand market is ever increasing. It's expanding globally. Um, you know, one of the luxury marketers I spoke with talked to me, gave me an anecdote. You know, the, a woman in China who, you know, 10 years ago bought her Louis Vuitton handbag in Shanghai, and she's a, maybe a wealthy woman who considers herself, you know, part of the elite um, of society there, is suddenly very angered when she sees a, a woman from, you know, a peasant woman from the countryside coming into Shanghai carrying the exact same Louis Vuitton handbag that she has. And so that is going to turn off a few people. But ultimately, it's, it really is going to spread this idea that luxury is attainable everywhere. I mean, think of it this way. We've got personal services like DoorDash and TaskRabbit. I mean, we've got kind of, if you think about it, as, as the hoi polloi proletariat, normal people, normal people, working class people with an income, have access to these services uh, personal services that in days gone by were available only to, you know, the very wealthy and the elite. Mm -hmm. We can have people running around doing errands and bringing stuff to our doorstep at the touch of a button. It's, it's phenomenal. So while it does feel a bit, little bit like an oxymoron, and while I do recognize and write about the fact that there is room for argument 
um, here. This is the line that is being pushed successfully, I might add, by luxury marketers all over the world. Well, you write, long before any of us were born, status has been considered a finite commodity and a zero-sum game. If I had status, that meant you and others had less. This paradigm is what the status revolution seeks to overturn. Status is no longer for the gilded elect. It's for everyone. So when did the status revolution, which is the title of the book, and also what you call a peaceful revolution, when did this begin? Well, I don't think there's any one starting point. I think you can probably trace its roots right now to the counterculture ethics of the 1960s and when that generation um, came of age and, and uh, assumed positions of power you know, in the economy and politically. You know, they, they, they did bring a lot of the ethos of the 1960s and 70s with them, dressing down uh, for one thing, you know, not necessarily making um, fashion um, a necessary part of signaling your status. You know, um, so we've got people like um, even, you know, Mitt Romney, when he was running financial investments in the tens of millions, driving around a dented Caprice Classic to work. And we've got, um, you know, people showing up, the CEOs showing up for work barefoot or in San Diego Padres uh, vintage jerseys and things mm -hmm. like that. So, I mean, that that's part of it. I think the social revolution that we've been seeing on a lot of levels um, in, in our society has really kicked things forward. Um, you know, one, in the world of ac academia, white males are, are no longer the primary drivers of ideas about status. Status is now about diversity. Those, those influencers that I mentioned uh, at the top of our discussion, Thorstein Veblen, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, Vance Packard, et cetera, right? These are all white male academics. Well, Packard wasn't necessarily an academic, he was a journalist, but but that was it, right? So, so, but more than, for more than a century, really virtually everything we've come to accept that's true about status has emanated from the perspective of white male academics for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. University professors. And, you know, there's a, there, one of my favorite quotes in the book comes from a, a new school sociology professor named Rachel Sherman, who told me, I'm kind of looking for it here, but I'm pretty sure the quote is, the early moments of social study, there was sometimes not a huge difference between social science and telepathy. It's a lot of white men talking out of their ass. So now, to be fair, I think the work of a lot of white male university professors has produced a lot of valuable information, right? And they've done great work, but also a very, a less than comprehensive perspective comes out of that. So let me give you one example about how in the halls of academia, particularly around the, um, um, where ideas about status are often identified and developed how all this has changed. Right? The gender gap that once skewed the social sciences at American universities is pretty much obsolete at this point. Right? Every year since 2006, women have earned more than half of all doctoral degrees. Between 2000 and 2018, the percentage of female faculty increased from 41% to 50% at mm -hmm. US universities. Now, inequities still exist in terms of pay and tenure, but the shifting gender trends are pretty obvious and they're crucial to our understanding of how status is evolving. And I'll, I'll, just one more example. Mm -hmm. In 1971, there were no women at all, none at all on the American Sociological Association's 11 member executive council. There were none even on its 30 member council. Now today in 2023, all six of the committee members on the ASA's executive committee are women. There's not a single man that's part mm -hmm. of this leadership committee. 
nor is a single white male part of its 11 member finance committee. So that's a huge course. That's a huge shift over the yeah. course of a situation, right? And so its implications in the way we look at st uh, status, the way studies are carried out, who carries them out, um, you know, what conclusions they draw. They're coming from a really broad range of society now, rather than a, a very narrow range. And I think that's also really changing um, ideas about status. Do you think it will always be this way? Um, no, for sure not. Um, you know, and, and the, a point I make at the end of the book is it's really easy to, to sit here and make a prediction that things are going to change, Rachel. You mark my words. Well, obviously they're going to change. Mm -hmm. My point in the book, things already have changed a lot in ways that haven't really been identified by a lot of um, people in, in the mass media anyway. So no, I think we're kind of just at the very beginning of this process, to be honest with you. Another thing that I you know, I, I just don't know about, I fully admit. And by the way, I don't think anybody who tells you they're an expert on status is telling the truth. It's such a huge, massive, <clears throat> sprawling issue and conundrum and feature of humanity. Mm -hmm. I don't think could claim to be an expert on it. But one thing I'll say is that I think our, as a society, society, when I say our relationship with money is changing with currency. I mean, the popularity of cryptocurrency is really um, a challenge to the way that we <clears throat> think about money. I mean, I'm living out here in Portland, Oregon, and I, I wouldn't say half, but I bet at least one out of 10 to one out of seven or eight stores that I go to now won't accept cash at mm, all. Really? A, I used to get smoothies down the street. And one day they just said, we're no longer taking cash. Well, part of that started with COVID, you know, and this idea that we're going to be sanitary and only use cards or whatever. But but they've kept that. And <clears throat> that surprises me, honestly, that, you know, legal U.S. tender is no longer being accepted. I went to a concert at um, Moda Center, which is where the Portland Trailblazers play out here. And at the mm -hmm. concert, not, nobody would take cash, only card card. I couldn't, get, I couldn't get a drink. I couldn't get a snack. I couldn't go to the merch table without a credit card. So that's really changed. I mean, the U.S. dollar, you know, 50 years ago, that was a passport to the world. Mm -hmm. And now you can't go down the street and use it to buy a smoothie. So I think I think we're in really early stages of this. I don't know where this is going, but it feels to me like there's a real big shift in how our relationship with money and our attitudes about money are evolving. Well, you write, that's very interesting, by the way. And I just, I never carry cash. I just don't, because if I have cash, I'll spend it quicker. But <laughs> to think that I couldn't use cash if I had it is, is ridiculous. Honestly. It bugs me. I like cash, but maybe on the, you know, it's all I had to get with money, right? I don't like running up my credit card because I don't like at the end of the month seeing, oh my God, 2,700 bucks. What, how the hell did I spend 2,700 bucks this month? Yeah. You know, so I like to, if I have it, I spend it. It's like, fine. Okay. It's done. <laughs> but that's but, just so interesting that you can't even spend the, the American dollar at an American smoothie. I'm shop. telling you, I'm telling you, it's not, it's, it's not the majority, but it definitely happens to me at wow. least once a week. Wow. Well, you mm. write that almost no one has any idea what status and prestige are anymore. So is status now irrelevant or becoming that way? Wow. I like that question. Um, I, I kind of want to ask you what you think, because I haven't thought of it that way. But the way you frame that question is good. And I think a lot of people will say, yes, I mean, maybe that's the logical con conclusion to if status is for everyone, well, what's the point of status? It's not right. status anymore, right? Mm 
-hmm. And so maybe that's where that line of thinking winds up. I don't think we're there yet, certainly. Um, and, you know, there is still, you know, there are still ways that people signal status through wealth um, and acquisition of, you know, goods and property or, or attractive sexual partners or lots of land or expensive cars or riding in first class as opposed to coach. Um, those things are still with us for sure. So I, I wouldn't go so far as saying that status is obsolete, but um, I don't know. I like your question. I'm going to think about it a little more after we're done speaking. Okay. I like to, <laughs> I like to make people think. I like to make people think. I appreciate. Um, well, yeah. I mean, did did that message? I mean, you, that that question from you came from somewhere. Did that did that start? Did that kind of emanate that idea after reading the book? Not necessarily. It's just that if we don't know what status and prestige are, if we can't pinpoint it or define it, then what do we have, you know, and does it, I think this, the value of status is certainly depreciating, but I don't think it's obsolete and I don't think it's irrelevant, but I think that it's being called into question in a number of ways. And I think the book unpacks that really well. That's true. And you know what you asked how I got started. Well, in, in part of that original research I did, I remember I came across this, um, oh, one of these newspaper articles that named the 500 most prestigious law firms in America, mm -hmm. right? And this is a thing put out by this company in Boston called Vault. It's like a career, I don't know, consulting outfit or whatever. They put out this list every year. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I thought, but, but in all the articles and in, in Vault's own writing about this list of the most prestigious law firms in America, they never mentioned once what prestige meant or how they were measuring prestige or, or mm -hmm. how they came to these conclusions. So I called the editor um, at Vault to ask him this very question. I said, okay, here's these 500 prestigious, most prestigious law firms. How do I know that law firm one is more prestigious than law firm 50? How do you come mm -hmm. to that conclusion? And he said, well, we asked all these lawyers to rank them. And I said, okay, well, what criteria did you give them? He said, we didn't yeah. give them any criteria. And he kind of went on and on. He sort of admitted at the end, he goes, yeah, it's a pretty gauzy definition. You know, we're just right. kind of let, letting people figure it out for themselves. And I think that is really where we are right now. We're at a moment uh, in time when as a culture, we're challenging ideas of status. We're challenging ideas of privilege. We're having arguments about them. We're having arguments on the street and on television about them. And and we don't quite know maybe where, how those are going to be settled or where they're going. But I think just that it's happening to me indicates a really fundamental shift in how the, the society at large is approaching status and prestige. And so that's why I called the book, The Status Revolution. Mm -hmm. If you take, so to answer my own question, if you take that list of law firms as a microcosm, as an example, that the way that they determine status makes all of that seem very irrelevant to me. That doesn't mean anything to me. Like just because somebody's like, oh yeah, I think this law firm's prestigious, I'll vote them in. So yeah, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. We're just gonna well, I have to say I agree with you. It kind of blew me away. And that's that was one of the things that really got me thinking, wow, this whole thing. I mean, and this th that list that they put out every year is really big. I mean, it takes in the biggest for you know, people you can kind of trace how you're doing in the industry, maybe how much money you're going to make. And it affects your livelihood lists like that, right? And mm -hmm. they're so random. 
And I thought, all right, something's going on here that I need to know more about. Yeah, if there's no methodology there, then that's, no. that's irrelevant to me, you know? Right. I, I remember back in the day I used to date, I've dated my fair speaking on the law firm lawyers tangent we're on right now. I've dated my fair share of lawyers. Hopefully I won't ever have. Oh, wow. Lawyers. Let's hear some. Um, <laughs> you got to have some good you stories. Don't have, you don't even have time. And no offense <laughs> to any lawyers that are listening, but that one lawyer in particular that I dated paid to be on some like rising stars list or something like that, which again, negates the entire relevancy of the list. If you're paying to be there or I, I don't know. It's just, what does any of it mean? You know, what does, or what does any, like, I don't know. It's just, you're, I'm just sitting here thinking and blowing my own mind over here. I don't know the answer, but I, I know that it's certainly not as relevant as I thought it was before I read your book. We'll just say it that way. Well, that's fine. Although, you know, maybe some other time we can delve into your uh, past with, with attorneys, but oh my no, gosh. it's true. I mean, there's, there's people, you, you buy, you put out a video now on in social media and you buy clicks, right? You buy views mm -hmm. or you buy followers. Yeah, everything is for so, sale. Everything is for sale. Right. And so, and, and, and you're absolutely correct. What does that mean ultimately? I mean, are, we're, we're, how flimsy is this idea of, of status? That I'm I'm purchasing ten thousand followers or two thousand likes mm -hmm. so that I can elevate my my you know, status on social media. You're right. And what That's does a lot any of, of it mean? This is a rhetorical question, but what does any of it mean? You know, what I just yeah, it's it's such an interesting. You wrote the book on it, but I'll claim to be no expert, but I certainly have been thinking a lot about it since I read your book. And you know, there's a lot to be gotten. That's bad grammar, but there's a lot to be learned and ascertained from this book, but what do you hope readers ultimately take away from the book? Well, first of all, I'll tell you, you're smart to claim not to be an expert on it because I don't either. I'm really an expert um, on nothing. Even the things they say I'm an expert on, I'm not an expert on that either. <laughs> you know what? I have to tell you what my, my ultimate goal with every book is, is to entertain people. I mean, and I, I think I'm entertained when I feel like I'm learning something, but I also want to be learning something in kind of a fun way. And I have this concept whenever I write any books that I call airplane books. And what I mean by that is not books that are about airplanes or something, but when I get on an airplane, let's say for a two or three hour flight, you know, I don't, I don't want to bring my 500 page biography of James Madison that I happen to be reading right now, or mm -hmm. uh, Yuval Noah Harari, you know, Homo Deus or something, which is an amazing book. One of the greatest books I've read in the last few years, but it's not the way I just want to pass some time on a really super uncomfortable flight and fidgeting and putting my book up now. And so I always, I always try to write books that are kind of pretty quick that have some jokes or a little humor that approach a topic in a kind of an irreverent way. That's one reason I wanted to write about rescue dogs to, to talk about status within the dog community, right? <laughs> how did these, how did these dogs that 50 years ago were being uh, rounded up and, and euthanized suddenly turn in to the princes of the pet world, right? Rescue dogs. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote about status within the dog community because I thought it was kind of a, a interesting and funny and irreverent way to go about the topic. So um, to be honest with you, what I really want people to take away from the book is, is to be entertained and to have a, a fun time for the couple hours that it takes to read the book. Well, it did that. And the book is The Status Revolution, The Improbable Story of How the Lowbrow Became the Highbrow. It's out now. 
thank you so much for being here today. This is this has got my wheels turning. I'm thinking a lot and I will continue. That that's the mark of a good book is when you will continue to think about it long after you finish the last page. Thank you again for being here today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you too. Chuck, days later, I'm still thinking about this conversation and how wild it is that cash is not accepted in a small business or a major arena and how there is no methodology for that best law firms list. The things I lose myself and thought over, I'm telling you. Again, the book is The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow. It's out right now. And listeners, I promise we will slow down at some point. I know I'm probably spamming your feed, but all of these books are fantastic. And I love sharing these conversations with you. And we will slow down at some point, but not this week. So did you know that the first James Bond movie and the first Beatles single came out on the very same Friday in October 1962. On Tuesday, we'll talk about those two British and global, honestly, cultural landmarks and how they have more in common than we might think. That is an interesting conversation as well. We'll talk soon.